Well, this morning is our final sermon on the people of Jesus. We're actually going to talk about communion this morning. I've been preaching for a long, long time, and I couldn't find in my files any time where I had ever preached on the topic of communion. So we're going to be looking specifically at the Lord's table this morning as his people as we prepare our hearts to come to the table. Uh, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to be starting in verse 17 and reading several verses in and through the end of the chapter. We're not going to go through all of it in order, uh, but we're going to hit part of it in depth. So when I was a kid growing up in church, and I walked in on Sunday morning and I saw the communion table in the front. The church I grew up in actually had a communion table. We have folding tables with or lunch table with, with a nice uh, white covering. Uh, but I'd walk in and I would see that and I would have, you know, the first reaction every time was oh, another 15 extra minutes in the service. <laughs> honest, honest truth. So, so maybe you walk in and you see the communion table and you go, okay, we're going to be here a couple of minutes longer. The kids are going to get to the donut table before we do. Uh, so maybe your thoughts are a little bit like mine, kind of along the, the, the question of time. But as I got older, uh, that began to shift gears a little bit. And it wasn't so much looking at the, the Lord's table and going, oh, gosh, I just, you know, do I have the, the time? It was more, am I worthy? I began to have a lot of self-doubt because I would look at my life and I would see what the Bible said about what it meant to live as a disciple of Jesus. Uh, and, I would, and I would compare those two things and there was always a pretty big gap between what scripture taught about being a disciple and my life. And so the question I began to ask was, am I worthy? Uh, is the table even for me? Uh, and so this morning, I'm actually excited to be able to, at least for a few minutes, touch on this topic. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, for about the first 20 minutes, we're going to look at the text uh, in particular, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going, to, uh, we're going to talk about the bread for a few moments. We're going to serve the bread, we're going to partake together, and then we're going to serve, we're going to talk about the cup, and then we're going to serve the cup, and we're going to partake it. So we're going to spread it out a little bit so we can kind of concentrate on it and get in there and, and live in it just a little bit. So with that in mind, 1 Corinthians 11, I'm going to read verses 17 through 22, then I'm going to read verses 27 through 29, which are not in the bulletin. I added those yesterday. They will be on the screen. And then 33 and 34. Hear the word of God, 1 Corinthians 11 starting in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink? Or, you do, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Verses 27 through 29. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let each person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Verse 33 and 34. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. 
if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give you directions when I come. This is the reading of God's holy, perfect word to him alone be glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the direction it gives us on what it means to love you actively and follow you actively, to be recipients of your grace in a way that that gets down deep into our souls and actually impacts the way in which we live our lives. Father, we pray that as we consider the Lord's table before we come to the Lord's table this morning, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you say to us. Uh, The sacraments are so crucial to uh, our spiritual nourishment. Lord Jesus, you are spiritually present in these elements as we partake. So it is important that we do so with humble and, and, and thankful hearts. So we pray that this passage would teach each one of us this morning, that we would learn from it, that you would apply it to our lives. Father, don't let me stand in the way of what you want to teach us this morning. Please forgive me for my sin. Help us to understand your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, even that brief reading that I gave you uh, probably helps you understand that in the Corinthian church, there was kind of this uh, collective church-wide chaos that was taking place, <clears throat> certainly within the church in general, but, but in particular, what Paul's addressing here, in the, in the question of communion, in the question of the Lord's table, there, was, there were things that were happening uh, that simply would, would be head scratchers for us, so to speak. I mean, how, how hard is it to really mess up communion? Apparently not that hard. The Corinthians were the church that put the fun back in dysfunctional. They were the ones that really just were zealous for Jesus, and, and they were in hyperdrive all the time, but they were having a hard time growing up in their faith. And we see it in a passage like this this morning. There, there, there were this collective chaos that I, that I call it, uh, really points to the fact that their individual hearts, their relationship with, with the Lord was really out of step, that they were missing something. They were, they were ignoring some things about their relationship with Christ that they needed to pay attention to. So the sermon in a sentence this morning is simply this. Celebrating communion increases our fellowship with the Lord Jesus and each other, or it brings our selfishness more sharply into focus does one of two things. It either helps us to increase our fellowship with the Lord Jesus and each other, or it brings our sinfulness more sharply into focus and therefore uh, in need of correction is probably how I should have ended that sentence. So let's look at the sinfulness for just a minute. Let's look at where the Corinthians were going wrong in verses 18 and 19. Paul says, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And the notion there of divisions is there's some animosity Uh, towards one another. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order for those who are genuine among you to be recognized. Paul is saying that there are are kind of personality contingents within the Corinthian church. If you go back to the early chapters of 1 Corinthians, you'll see that Paul talks about it right off the bat in chapter 1. Some of us say you follow uh, Apollos, who was another uh, great pastor in Paul's generation. Paul would say, and some of you say you follow Peter, and some of you say you follow Paul. And he says, I don't understand that. Who is Paul, or who is Apollos, or who is Peter? The person you ought to be following collectively together is Jesus. But it's natural for humans, apart from the grace of God, to kind of pick sides, isn't it? Maybe Apollos did some things a little bit differently 
than Paul did. And maybe some folks in the church thought, I really like Apollos' style a little bit better than I like the Apostle Paul's. And maybe it started out innocently enough, but quickly it grew to, well, I really followed the way of Apollos, and that's really the right way. And I really wish you guys who followed Paul or Peter would get it right and come over here. And there began to be divisions and rancor. There began to be animosity. We also learn earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians that there were theological distinctions that had raised arguments among the people as well. If you go back a couple chapters, Paul is talking about the notion of food sacrifice to idols and whether Christians could buy that food and eat that food or not. So the idea was that, that the false gods were worshipped, that the, the meat was cooked, uh, but then it wasn't consumed, it was actually sold in the marketplace at a discount. So it's like the Sam's wholesaler of the ancient world, right? So somebody who's a good Midwesterner like us, if we were the church fourth, we'd go, well, sure, we're going to buy what's less expensive. That'll, that'll save us some money. And other people said, how on earth could you do that? How could you eat food sacrificed to an idol? That, that's been sacrificed to a false god. How on earth could you do that? And, and this theological question that Paul actually answers and says, either way is okay based on your conscience before the Lord. So Paul says there isn't a right or a wrong here. It depends on what you believe. If you believe that you ought not eat it, then that's right for you, but you can't put that on your brother or your sister. And if you believe it's okay to eat that and that, that the false idol is just that, a false idol, it doesn't matter, you don't wave that in front of your brothers and sisters who are bothered by that. You love one another in the process. You don't allow your theology to divide you. And we're in trouble in the church. The Corinthians were in trouble. When we're more interested in winning the argument than loving others. We're more interested in winning the argument than loving others. That will cause a church to dry up faster than anything else that I can think of. When we insist on our way above our love and our compassion for one another. So I have a maple tree in my backyard. And the maple tree was actually a gift to us from Green Tree Community Church. On the very uh, Sunday that I was voted in as the pastor, uh, the, the whole church at the time was about 50 or 60 people, showed up at my house, and they had a, a maple tree, a sapling, and we planted it in the backyard, and it's grown. And on, on Monday of this week, uh, the leaves were green, and the tree was beautiful. On Thursday, the leaves were brown, and the tree was dead. And I'm heartbroken over that. I don't know what's happened. I called uh, the, a friend of mine who works for a landscaping company. He's going to look at it tomorrow. But the tree was gone like that. I mean, literally, I drove up the driveway on Thursday, and I went, oh, my goodness, what has happened? That, that's, that's the tree. You know, so I think the Lord's teaching me that I need to get an acorn because that's our new, you know, and I need to plant that and start over again. That's okay. That's all right. But, but whatever it was, it was lethal, and it was lethal quick. Divisions, rancor, theologically fighting with one another can do more to destroy a church than anything else. And certainly puts us out of step with the heart and soul of the Lord's table. Later on in 2 Corinthians, Paul said this in uh, chapter 5, verse 14. He's talking about his passion to share the gospel with the world, and he says this. The love of Christ controls us. I was reading that again this morning. I was thinking, there's, there's a great life statement. Can I say in every scenario and every situation that the love of Christ controls me? In the New International Version, it says the love of Christ compels us. Same kind of notion. But I think about differences that we have with one another we're going to. 
We're going to have differences with one another. We're going to have disagreements on theology. We're going to, we're going to look at baptism different ways. We're going, to, we're going to look at some of these things differently. But if the love of Christ controls us, we can disagree in love. And actually, that will be a greater witness to the world than us just all agreeing on everything. But Paul says there, part of the sinfulness is division and rancor. The second thing he points out is this unhealthy favoritism uh, seems like something of a privilege, and it has to do with people's wealth. Look at verses 20 and through 22. Paul says this, When you come together, is it, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. Well, why is that, Paul? For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Apparently what's crept into the church in Corinth is this godless pecking order. This sense of, of those who are wealthy or are more important than those who have less. Those who are, who are uh, eating and drinking in an unworthy manner, according to Paul, seem to be those who are, who are exhibiting self-righteous and arrogant behavior. They're saying, you know, we, we're really the ones who pay for everything around here. You know, the, 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 the folks over there that don't really have that much, they don't give that much, they're not as important. We should be at the front of the line. There's a sense of uh, divisions based on human wealth. And clearly, there's something radically wrong with that. Some were, were free to partake of the Lord's Supper, while others clearly had to wait. Because Paul said, I'm hearing that sometimes there's nothing left. Now, clearly, the Lord's Supper was a little different than that day than the way we celebrate it uh, in our day and age. There was a little more to it than that. There was actually a coming and a sitting at the table together. A lot of this probably took place in homes. They didn't have a kind of a collective gathering area. Church has not started to be built yet. So there, there was more of a meal sense to it, but it was under the, the lordship of the, of the Lord's table. And Paul says, we're, we're way out of balance here. How can it be that, that one person drinks so much that they get drunk, which is, which is something we ought not be doing as disciples, while another one sits by waiting, hoping maybe there are some scraps left. And sometimes there's absolutely nothing left. We, uh, on Friday this week, uh, the staff at Green Tree, um, put together a, uh, uh, a cookout for the guys who are working on the building next door. And we had about 32 or 33 guys come across the parking lot at noon, and uh, we, we grilled out for them, and we had some potato salad and some cookies, and we just invited them over and, and sat them down and uh, brought them inside the air conditioning. Friday was a little bit on the hot side, and for about 45 minutes, they just got to have a, a nice lunch. It wasn't anything really incredible, but, it, you know, it was, they appreciated the effort. And as they were leaving... You know, just almost every guy was saying to me, thank you so much. Thank you so much. This is so, so special. This is, this is so wonderful. And, uh, and when they had pretty much all gone, the site superintendent, a guy named Tim, who's a Christian, came to me and said, I, I think you need to understand how grateful these guys are because most people look at them as second-class citizens because they're construction guys. They're not white-collar guys. And, and most people, to most people they're, that where we go and we build something, the, these men are invisible. To our clients. And so for you to actually acknowledge them just by giving them a hamburger, you know, and a slice of watermelon and some potato salad meant the world to them. The love of Christ controls us, Paul says. As we come to his table, we should be saying to others around us, no, you first, because <laughs> that's what Jesus would be saying. And he would be saying it from his heart 
not from, not from trying to get it right. This favoritism, this privilege, for whatever reason, Paul says it holds Jesus and it holds the church of Jesus in contempt. In other words, we're looking down on the Lord even as we come to his table. They really had some sinfulness in the, in the church in Corinth. We would be wise to pay attention to this passage lest some of that begin to creep into our fellowship. But Paul does offer the antidote. He doesn't just kind of wag his finger at them and, and get after them, although he certainly does that. Uh, but he offers them some sound godly advice on how to move in a different direction. And the first thing he says is there needs to be honest self-examination. Look at verses 27 through 29. Is it raining? I'm thinking I left my windows part of the way down. Oh, well. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. And then verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning eats and drinks judgment on himself. What is Paul saying there? Well, clearly he's saying that the Corinthians are getting it wrong because they're ignoring self-examination. They're assuming that they should come to the table and that perhaps others should wait. And he's saying, you've skipped a step. The first thing we ought to do when we come to the Lord's table is we need to look at ourselves as unworthy of the grace and the mercy of Christ. Verse 27, whoever eats or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, in an arrogant manner, in a self-righteous manner, is language that you could put in there. When we... When we uh, we use the language in the, in the clergy, guard the table, when we fence the table, when we remind everybody before we take communion, and I will do it again this morning, and we say to folks, we want to examine our hearts, both believer and unbeliever. If you're here as an unbeliever, we encourage you to stay away from the table. Why? Because it's of no value to you. It actually can be harmful to you if you come thinking, you know, I can do that. Anybody can do that. I don't need Jesus. I can just have the table. That would be doing spiritual harm to yourself. But Christians... We can have the exact same attitude. We can come with the wrong type of confidence. We can come with a self-confidence. We can come being really uh, hopeful that the person to our right or left really spends some time in prayer and repentance before they, they come to the table and so they get it right like me. <laughs> Instead of looking at our own hearts, we need to guard against the unworthiness of self-righteousness and arrogance, which means we have to take a good, hard look at ourselves. Verse 28, let each person or let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread or then eat the bread and drink the cup. What does that self-examination look like? I think it has three steps to it according to other parts of scripture. The first would be simply acknowledging my sinfulness. Saying, yeah, apart from Jesus, I have no business at the Lord's table. I can't come there on my own goodness, on my own righteousness. The second thing I think in that, that self-examination, taking a good hard look, is really grieving over that. Saying, I, I really am not happy that that's my heart. It, it grieves me that my sinfulness has separated me from God. There is some sorrow over my sin. But then thirdly, there is a repentance. Father, I confess that to you. Lord Jesus, I acknowledge that's who I am. I'm a liar. I'm a cheat. I'm an adulterer. I'm a fill in the blank with whatever sin happens to be the sin in my heart. Fill in the blank with whatever happens to be the sin in your heart. That's what it means to take a good hard look, to acknowledge, to grieve, to repent. 
Because if we don't, we stand under God's discipline. Not God's punishment, but God's correction. Okay? God punished our sins at the cross of Jesus. Jesus paid for our sins. The, we do not stand guilty before God any longer. But God does discipline us when we don't follow him as we should. He offers us loving correction. Look at verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment. That word judgment there means the, the judgment of a father who's looking at a child or the, the judgment of an employer looking at an employee or someone who's in authority over another and saying, they're getting it wrong, I need to correct it. So it doesn't mean that, it, that if I don't come to the Lord's table appropriately, that I'm lost forever. That's not the point. What Paul is saying is that God's a good father. Think about a father that watches their children doing something wrong, right? Okay, whatever it may be, being disrespectful to somebody else or the father saying don't run out in the street and they run out in the street. Think about the dad who does that. I'm just going to pick on the dads. I'm going to leave moms out of the equation this morning. Think about the dad who does that and, and ignores their child's uh, actions. That says, oh, they can, they can talk to people disrespectfully. It's kind of cute. They're going through a phase right now, right? They're 18, but I'm sure they'll get, they'll get past it, right? Now, that's just so cute, right? Okay. Or you watch a, a parent who says, now, don't run out in the street. And, and the child runs out in the street. And they're like, now, come on back here. I told you not to run out in the street. And they run out in the street. They're like, oh, now, come on. And you go, you know what? You know what? Here's what I say. I say that father doesn't love that child. Because love takes work. Love takes commitment. Love takes sacrifice. Of course your child's not going to be happy with you when you correct them. When you say, don't talk to an adult like that, and if you do it again, you're grounded. Right? Your child's not going to appreciate it if you pull them out of the street and you give them a little swat on the behind and say, don't go back in the street because the car always wins if the two of you collide. That's love, and that's the hard thing to do. Your child's not going to like you when they do that. Of course they're not going to. But they need it, and they crave it, and if they don't have it, they're going to not feel undisciplined. They're going to feel unloved. Your heavenly father, our heavenly father, loves us enough that when he says, go this way, don't go that way, and we go that way, he's not going to ignore that. He's going to draw us back in, and sometimes he's going to use discipline to do that. But that's the consistent love of a father. Honest examination. Secondly, Paul says there's also a change of heart. Look at verses 33 and 34. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If one is hungry, if anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it is not for judgment. Paul says there ought to be an observable change in your behavior going forward. So today, the way you're celebrating the Lord's Supper of Communion is you're not waiting for each other. You're making the poor people wait. Maybe there isn't anything left for them. Maybe you're, you're having so much wine that you're actually getting tipsy. That's all bad. I, here's the correction. Here's the change. Examine your heart. Come with humility. Come with repentance. Now we ought to be able to see that. Now it ought to be observable in your life so that when you come together, what happens? Oh, we wait for one another. And that's a nice that's a way of saying we're polite to one another. We, we invite others to go ahead of us. There's an observable behavior change, not in our words to God, but in our way in which we care for one another. Something has changed us from the inside out. I was reading on uh, Jeff and Becky Peters' Facebook page there, uh, old friends from Green Tree who, who moved to Hilton Head a few years ago, and they're now living in Haiti, and they're serving in Haiti, and they're home for a little while in Hilton Head. And Jeff spoke at his church last week, and Becky put this note out on their Facebook page. I just saw it early this morning. She said, Jeff spoke at our home church about our work in Haiti. 
uh, there was a 12-year-old there. 12-year-old Jack heard about the daily dilemma that moms in Haiti have trying to decide which of their children will get to eat that day. Jack brought us a handwritten note with money he had earned. Dear Mr. and Mrs. Peters, the note went, I heard your story last week, and it stunned me. Twelve years old, right? Our kids aren't stupid. They're, they're brilliant. Twelve-year-old using the word stunned in a sentence. I love it, right? It stunned me. It hurt my heart that a mother had to decide what child to feed. I'm donating this money so she will not have to make that decision as often. I am interested in what you are doing, and hopefully I'll be able to come this year. Sincerely, Jack. Out of the mouths of babes, right? God teaches us. There's a shift in behavior. There was Jack coming to church on Sunday morning. Maybe he was happy to be in church. Maybe he wasn't happy to be in church. Maybe it was a communion Sunday. He saw the table and went, oh, good, another 15 minutes. But somewhere in that service, God touched Jack's heart. And Jack didn't want his money anymore. He wanted to give it to somebody else. Paul says, when you grieve over your sin, when you repent, when you see God's opportunity to go in a different direction, it will be observable. The work of God's grace is observable, and we end up doing what? At the end of the day, we not only treat one another well, but we end up honoring the table of our Lord Jesus. So let's pray about that for just a minute. Father, we thank you for the grace that you give us in Christ. Father, we thank you for the challenge of this passage that teaches us that we can let divisions, we can let rancor and, and favoritism creep into our own hearts and lives. And if we are not honest in our self-examination, if we do not confess our sin to you and repent of that sin, we do harm to the body of Christ. We do harm to our own hearts and minds. So Father, protect us, we pray. Guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Teach us this lesson that we would be a humble people, that we would be a gracious people, not because we've just decided that's who we're going to be, but because you are changing our hearts and our minds. And so, Lord, as we come to your table this morning, we pray for, for that transformation. Father, we pray that as we reflect on our sin, that we would grieve, and that we would repent, and that we would rest in your grace, and that this meal would nourish our souls, and that as it does so, that our lives are changed. Our fellowship is deeper, it's richer, because it comes from a place that is the heart of Jesus. We pray in his name, amen. So I want to talk for just a couple of minutes about the body of Christ, the, the bread in which we're going to partake in, in just a, a minute or two. Here's what we say on Communion Sunday. The Lord Jesus, and this is actually out of uh, 1 Corinthians 11. This is the passage that I skipped that was kind of in the, in the heart of what Paul wrote. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he gave thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. There are a couple things that I, I want us to consider this morning as we uh, prepare our hearts for communion. The first is this, that Jesus had a thankful heart on the night in which he was betrayed. 
So Jesus knew that he was being betrayed by Judas. That was not lost on him. He wasn't surprised by that. He wasn't shocked. He, didn't, he wasn't caught unawares. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew that he was facing the absolute worst 24 hours of his life, and yet he had a thankful heart. I think of how quickly my thankfulness goes away. It doesn't take a whole lot. Josh could look at me the wrong way while I'm preaching. I go, oh, man, I'm not sure what he's thinking right now, and my thankfulness could be gone. So don't look at me there. It's all on you, Josh, okay? All right. But we're so easily, you understand my point. The point is we're so easily lost, losing, we can easily lose our thankfulness. And how much Jesus points us to the fact that he was at rest even in a moment of great trial. And he was at rest to the degree that he had the proper attitude. It was right to be thankful, and therefore, he was. The second thing, and I've, I've touched on that, that he was thankful even in the face of suffering. I think sometimes when I suffer, which is nothing compared to how Jesus suffered. I mean, you can't even mention them in the same book, much less the same paragraph or the same sentence. But sometimes when I suffer, I really wrestle with thankfulness. I really think, you know, Lord, why, why is this happening to me? And I lose my perspective. I allow suffering to, to hurt my discipleship instead of why God intends it, which is to help my discipleship. Because when I suffer, what God wants me to do is to put my eyes more on him and trust more in him and rest more on him. And that's why his body was given, so that we could understand that through his suffering, we can experience that healing. As his body is broken... It's broken for us. This is my body, Jesus says, which is for you. So put your name in that line. This is my body, which is for you, Tom. Put your name in that line. Jesus says, I am allowing my body to be broken, not as an example for you, not as a, you know, hopefully a pick-me-up and, and, and say, you hang in there, you can do anything if you're tough enough. I'm giving my body to be broken for your salvation. So as we take the cup, uh, as we take the bread this morning, let's remember the thankful heart of Jesus. Let's remember that Jesus had the right attitude, even in the even in the context of suffering. I'm sure there are people in this room that are suffering this morning. I mean, we have we have a couple hundred people, and there's no question that there's suffering going on in this room. Cling to the fact that Jesus knows what it means for you to suffer. And he loved you enough to, to undergo the ultimate suffering so that you and I could have salvation. I'm going to invite the servers if you would come forward. And I'm going to give one or two more instructions while you all are making your way up here. We're going to serve you the bread this morning. You guys are going to stay seated. We're going to serve you both the bread and the cup. Uh, but what we'd like for you to do this morning, as the bread is being passed, we'd like you to join with our worship team uh, in singing a song of worship. And then after everybody has been served and after the worship song is completed, uh, then I'll come back up and we will partake of the bread together. Uh, and then I'm going to talk about the cup for a couple minutes. So please, as you're being served, join us in the worship of God. Oh, and I'm sorry, before you start, I missed one thing. If you are gluten intolerant, that those elements are on the tray, but they're underneath the cloth.
This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. Your holy presence living in me. This is my daily bread. This is my daily bread. Your very word spoken to me. And And I, 
Lord Jesus said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul goes on to write in 1 Corinthians 11, in the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the remission of sins. All of you do this in remembrance of me. When I think about the cup of the Lord Jesus, and I think about the the blood of the, the Lord Jesus, I think about the language that he uses to describe it. And Jesus says, this is the new covenant. We don't use that word very much anymore unless you're in the legal profession and then you see that word written so often, uh, covenants for this or for that. But it simply uh, is a legal term that means a binding contract. What Jesus is saying is the contract for your salvation, the contract for my salvation is written in his blood. It is irrevocable. It cannot be changed ever. It cannot change because in the mind of God, it is right. I want you to let that sink in for a minute. It can't change. If you have put your faith in Christ for salvation, between now and when you close your eyes and open them and see Jesus, it's a nice way of saying between now and your death, my death, we are going to stumble. We are going to have moments where we look in the mirror and go, that person looking back at me is not a Christian. They couldn't possibly be a Christian because of the way in which I'm acting. At that moment, let me encourage you to say, there's a fine line between godly sorrow and deadly sorrow. Godly sorrow looks at the ink of the blood of Jesus and says, yes, I have sinned. Yes, I am in desperate need for the forgiveness of God, but he has given it to me at the cross, and because he signed it in his own blood, it will never change. We cannot outsin the grace of God. Please don't go out and try to accomplish that feat. It will only do great, terrible damage to your soul. But understand, brothers and sisters, When you're in that moment of despair and your own soul condemns you, there is only one place to look for relief because there's only only one place that relief comes, and it comes through the blood of Christ, through the new covenant in his blood. The author of Hebrews reinforces this by saying, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. So you see, friends, God hasn't turned a blind eye to your sin. He paid for your sin on the cross. Justice has been met. So to me, when I look at the cup, when I view the cup, I see it as a constant reminder of the grace of God in which I stand. Let me invite the servers, if you would come back up. Uh, Congregation, I'll give you the same instructions. Hold on to the cup. Join us in songs of worship, and after everyone is served, we will partake together.
your blood speaks a better word than all the empty claims I've heard upon this earth. Speaks righteousness for me, stands in my defense. Jesus, it's your blood. Let's sing that again. Your blood speaks a better word than all the empty claims I've heard upon this earth. Speaks righteousness for me, stands in my defense. Jesus, it's your blood. What can wash away our sins? What can make us whole again? Nothing but the blood, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can wash us? Pure as snow, welcomed as the friends of God. Nothing but your blood, nothing but your blood, King Jesus. Friends of God, 
Nothing but your blood, nothing but your blood, King Jesus, only King Jesus. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the remission of sins. All of you drink. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your body and your blood given for sinners like us that we would be redeemed. Father, we pray that that redemption, the new life in our souls, the spiritual nourishment we have received this morning would result in praise to you and lives lived to your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let me invite you if you would pass your cups to the outside and the uh, servers will come by and pick those up. Let's stand for this last song. I believe in the sun 